Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorne, action movie screenwriter. And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster. And together we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard. Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a roadhouse. Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere. Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre. So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard. Ooh, very nice. Then Die Hard on a Blank is for you. Yes, you personally. Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, drop December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line. Now we have a podcast. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. Sorry, I just wanted to do the oh, dramatic Jesus pause. I'm Christ. here. I'm here. It's George. Uh, it's George. Um, uh, Liam was like, I'm, so, I, I could see that you're here. Why don't you just Yeah, say it was something? really an awkward couple of seconds. Um, so we're here with a bonus. With Well, okay, it's not a bonus episode. Um, it's a bridge episode. It's a bridge episode because here's the deal. Uh, we released our Jacko's Boating episode with Adam Shartoff. Thank you, Adam. And, um, and then because of life stuff, uh, we weren't <sighs> able to get together. Mostly my fault. Life. Um, just trips just pain fine. pain in the just ass moving around liam leads quite the cosmopolitan um, existence i uh because i'm traveling for most of october most of the second half of october um we weren't able to get together and do a proper episode on the master but we didn't want to leave you hanging without our sweet succulent voices to sit in solemn silence on a dull dark dock <laughs> in a pestilential <laughs> prison with a lifelong lock deep cut um, also, the master episode might very well be our last episode. Yeah, that might end the that might end the fucking podcast. Yeah. Um, okay. So we we decided to do this bridge episode. So we're gonna do two things. We're gonna respond to a a long neglected voicemail about Mission Impossible Three from Shahir Dowd, who is on our synecdoche episode. Synecdoche episode. Oh, that's really good to do. You are a teacher. Well, no, Caitlin. Caitlin member said that. Caitlin McBurke. Caitlin McBurke. Who was on? Of course. The doubt episode. Yeah, uh, I still have my doubts about. Oh, I still about, have my doubts. Uh, um, so we're gonna listen to a voicemail that he sent us about Mission Impossible Three. This show seems to just suddenly becoming a uh, Mission Impossible Stand podcast, <laughs> which I'm fine with. Also, uh, recommendation: Light the Fuse cast. Hey, great podcast. It is a great podcast. You know what else I movie I like? Mission Impossible Four. It's good. It's no Mission Impossible Fallout. Yeah, but or it Mission is Impossible One. But it is a Mission. It is probably better than Mission Impossible Five. I mean, actually, I'm not sure if that's true. Uh, yeah, no. I mean, the rank. We went over. We this. Have to the go ranking goes rank six, one, <laughs> four, five, three, two. I mean, you're wrong, but that's fine. How am I wrong? You're right about the about three and two. I think the other ones I would kind of like. Yeah, I, you know, I tweak it a little bit. So we're gonna listen to his voicemail, which we'll play for you. Um, and then we're gonna look just for a minute at this article called "The Epic Uncool of Philip Seymour Hoffman," yeah. which is from the dearly departed Dissolve, um, which was a outfit in uh chicago that um was 
when the AV Club did its massive layoffs years ago, uh, the wonderful AV Club team made up of folks like Keith Phipps, Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, my my here my boy Scott Tobias, my favorite film critic, critic Nathan Rabin and um, Genevieve Kosky, who and are this, all great, started the uh, Devolve, which it lasted for several glorious years. And this article is by Nathan Rabin. This article is by Nathan Rabin, and he watched every single film that Philip Seymour Hoffman was in. And we're not going to do, do a deep dive into that because there's a lot. This 16-page article, I think. but It's um, really long, yeah. But and we're going to really talk expensive. a little bit about the categories and how it relates to our categories. But first, uh, let's let's jump back in time and listen to um, Shahir on... Uh, what's it called? MI3. MI3. Hello, Liam and George of the Oofle Busters podcast. This is Shahir Dowd from The Only Podcast About Movies. Now, I know you guys are witty, intelligent, thoughtful raconteurs who have reviewed a lot of classy films, the likes of which of John Cassavetes and now the entire body of work of Philip Seymour Hoffman. But I wanted to chime in on Mission Impossible 3, uh, which I guess I possibly disagree with some of your takes on, but in a playful way. Um, I do think this is the best of the franchise and if not the crown jewel. And yeah, I guess I guess I would say that because uh, if I was to rank the films, I think I would go uh, three, one from the great Brian De Palma, Fallout, the most recent, then it gets a little blurry after that. Uh, Four and five, I think, you know, as you as you identified on the show, mesh together a little bit you know, too closely to be somewhat indifferent about them. And of course, uh, poor old John Woo at the, at the bottom spot. Um, but I thoroughly enjoyed this uh, outing for Mr. Ethan Hunt for one reason specifically. Well, many reasons, but the main reason is Mr. Philip Seymour Hoffman, who I think, uh, who's Owen Deviant, Davian, Deviant, Damian, Davian, whatever it is, um, is the is without a doubt the best villain in the series, but in, he's he's the best villain because he is precisely the antithesis of Ethan Hunt uh, in this franchise, which is that he just simply doesn't care about Ethan Hunt very much. I think there's an indifference that Philip Seymour Hoffman brings to the performance that I think is chilling to Ethan, you know, who cares so much about doing the right thing and about making sure his friends don't get into trouble and about making sure that he has the right plan. Whereas Owen just seems to have an entire, an entirely chilling indifference to anything Mr. Hunt has to say to him. And I, I, I think there's something in the in the performance that is that cuts to the heart of what Ethan is. And we've all identified that Ethan is sort of a cipher for essentially for Tom Cruise at this point. Um, and, and really, you know, can, ha- hasn't got too much going on politically, but I think JJ was smart. I'm calling him JJ as though we're friends um, to make him a family man in this, in this particular um, iteration of the, of the franchise. You know, um, he had been a, a sort of young agent in part one, an ultra cool, super, you know, long haired motorcycle riding uh, birds, you know, doves flying in the background kind of action hero in part two. And it was rightly so in this third film that they decided none of that was really working too well, except, of course, in, in Brian De Palma's version, um, you know, and and decided to make him a family man. And for for what it's worth, and as, as trite and as cheesy as that can be, particularly in the treatment of women, I think it actually plays for Ethan or the character of Ethan really well. It gives him uh, a set of stakes, which are, which I don't think has really been met in the rest of the series. I think... 
uh, both four and five have played with the idea of him trying to protect his wife. Even six, uh, I guess, you know, Michelle Monaghan has come back at the end of uh, uh, four and at the end of six. So it's it's the introduction of that character in this film, which really makes this film the one that um, that elevates the franchise beyond just a series, a delivery mechanism for set pieces, which would, which is what I feel Brad Bird um, and to a lesser extent um, Christopher McQuarrie kind of got into. Um, episode four opens with a pretty tremendous um, action. Se- oh, it's episode five. Sorry, opens with a pretty tremendous action sequence where. Uh, Tom Cruise is uh, hanging from a plane, but it has absolutely nothing to do with the entire film. Whereas every set piece in Mission Impossible 3 matters to the story. And there's a breathlessness with which we travel from uh, set piece to set piece. And I think one other thing is, is that none of the set pieces are in of itself, which is the, to say that they don't feel like set pieces that are staged just to um, illustrate how capable a stunt person Tom Cruise is. I think Fallout manages to get away from that from that feeling, but 4 and 5 really do have that sense about them, and I think, uh, you know, obviously 2 doesn't work very well either. But nothing in Episode 3 really feels like it's there to kind of dazzle the audience in terms of uh the stunt performances i think every every set piece matters every set piece is executed really well and my favorite set piece in the in mission impossible 3 is the one where we don't actually see the heist there's a set piece in china where uh ethan has to uh retrieve the white rabbit or the rabbit's foot sorry and uh, instead of actually seeing the mechanics of how he does it, we cut to Maggie Q's character outside talking to Jonathan Reese Meyer about a little prayer that she has for her cat. And then he comes back. And I, I just I think that's uh, an example of how willing uh, Abrams and company were to break free of the mold of this. I think. This could have been, uh, you know, in in any other sequence, this would have been another set piece to show off. But they instead don't don't decide to do that. Instead, just keep the momentum going with the film. At any rate, I think this is. I still think this is the best of the franchise, and I'm willing to fight to the death to to prove so. Um, hopefully, we'll get to talk in person and and won't get too distracted with our differing opinions on the film. Uh, but uh, hope to see you soon. Thanks for the uh, thanks for the endless hours of entertainment and the uh, and the wonderful work uh, exposing me to a lot of films that I haven't seen, particularly your first season on Cassavetes. Uh We'll see you soon, guys. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Shahir. Thanks, Shahir. Yeah, a lot to unpack there. Yeah, um, I thought he was going to say, I thought he was going to do the, oh, I, I like it because it's gritty, which I'm glad he didn't, because um, I think that'd be the cheap and easy way to approach this film. That'd be cheap and easy. Um, let's start with what I think is the least interesting, the le- not the least, but the less interesting thing, which is the the most, the best or the most interesting Admission Impossible thing, but this did bring up something that I want to talk about in Phil Hoffman's performance. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. Um, I sort of agree with Shahir, I don't think there's any more movies in the franchise that without the third one. The third one's really important at establishing the mythology going forward. Um, and I think McQuarrie very wisely brought it back to that in six, which feels like a sequel to three that's, yeah, that's in a, a way point. that four and five are not mm-hmm. because the the movies, the, the thing that works for me again, and this isn't the Mission Impossible podcast, but I think the thing that works for me really well with the whole franchise is the sense of scope and that Ethan Hawke won't 
Hunt. Ethan, fuck. Ethan Hunt has to choose, be, refuses to choose between saving one life or saving many lives. Yeah. And six works for me so well. Again, I keep harping on it. Is the scene with the policewoman in France? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Where they just need to get out of there, but he refuses to let her die. And yeah. It's it's it's, a, it's actually a lot. To me, it's a lot more interesting to deal with him having to deal with real world consequence of an individual life mm-hmm. versus the life of everyone on Millions. the planet. Like I think that well, these more movies. Abstract. Yeah. Well, I think, th- I think it's more abstract, but it's a lot more interesting than just it being about his personal relationships. Oh yeah. 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 Right. Um, yeah, no, totally. I think th- bringing it back to um, PSH and thinking about also how the kind of villain he plays. And I do yeah. agree with you here that, he is, and one of the reasons, obviously, he's such an exceptional villain is because he's such an exceptional actor. Right. And he knows exactly what he's doing. And yes, totally, that there's this interesting kind of juxtaposition or in the way in which kind of his villainous character is antithetical to everything that Ethan Hunt is supposed right. to be. Um, it's all in the attitude. Yeah, it's all in the attitude. But it's also interesting to compare that or his role to six and i know you're not like a cavill stan or this cavill stan in the sense of I his would, role in i would that be film. the opposite of a, of a cavill stan actually even in that movie i don't really even love him yeah that that's movie. what i'm saying that you don't love him in that movie and i'm not like you know a fan either but i think he does a really good job is in that, that film. henry cavill tattoo on your arm oh, like i just got it what do you think it's uh, <laughs> pretty good it it's looks great. exactly why did you, like why did you include the mustache oh well, because yeah it's but it's gonna, the mustache it's, gonna, it's a shot of his face from justice league when the mustache is still clearly it's gonna cost me like five million dollars to get that uh uh, wiped out get yeah, it get yeah, it get right. it so i think but i think what's great Three about million. cavill in that film is that he, he's a physical he's so physically he's imposing yeah and that he at least on a physical level does right. pose a threat to ethan hunt like he's the villain that like obviously philip seymour hoffman you're like well, okay he can't kick his ass i mean he could be villainous and he could be so psychotic that he could kill him and destroy his life but with cavill you're like okay this guy could like literally beat him to death with his fist um another uh, to bring it back to the light the fuse cast mm-hmm. they did an interview with them um, a guy that worked on set and he was <laughs> talked a lot about how out of shape phil hoffman was so <laughs> well, whenever they would do those yeah. scenes because he smoked yeah. whenever he wasn't on camera uh, he was smoking chain smoker. yeah so that's interesting um to to piggy we spent a lot of time on the film ranking so i want to 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 sort of piggyback off your point ethan hawk cares so much hunt. Hunt, ethan hunt cares so much i just now imagine like a mission impossible movie with like yeah again with he's like, two Michelle steps Monahan. away from with ethan hunt doing yeah. well there's like you know they just spend like, ethan a, like a romantic you did it again they spend like a romantic night in a like uh like in a really Italy, a european city yeah. and they're just kind of talking, talking. yeah <laughs> What do you want? Yeah. I really want these guys to stop chasing yeah. us. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Remember that time I had to steal that rabbit's foot? That was crazy. That was intense. Um, why does everyone do talk like live? that when you... <laughs> <laughs> do you think our kids are happy? Yeah. We don't have kids. Um, no, I mean like our future kids. <laughs> oh, I love you, Ethan. I know, but will it last? Who can tell? Hello, it's me, Julia. Julia Julia Delvey. Hello. Make a cameo. This is Terry. <laughs> I love you, Ethan Hunt. Um, so, so you got it right there, but it would have be been better if you said Ethan Hawke. Julie TV, I love you, Ethan Hawke. You're beautiful. Oh, um, we're only three years away from another one of those. Oh God, I don't know. If On we're a serious make note, she, th- she made a comment. She there was an interview with her this week where she basically wouldn't do it until she, she got equal pay because she was making a lot less money than Ethan really? Hunt, Ethan Hawke. <laughs> And it was good I mean, for her. No, no, yeah, no, absolutely. I'm Fuck surprised yeah. that those two guys would like not fucking pay her equal money. That's kind of really shitty. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, so, but I do think that it's interesting to compare the not caring Tom Cruise with the 
with the caring or the caring Ethan Hunt with the uncaring Owen Davian versus the very, very deeply caring Phil Parma and the uncaring uh-huh. Frank T.J. Mackey in Magnolia. Yeah. It's an interesting parallel uh-huh. to think about. Deep pull. Um, I mean, obviously, at the end of the day, Frank T.J. Mackey cares very deeply about his father at Magnolia, yeah. but they kind of reverse energy in that movie. Yeah. Uh, they have these two set. I've, I'm just so curious. I'm sure that Tom Cruise loved him in Magnolia and wanted to work with him um, because they have such intense sort of scenes together, but yeah. they couldn't be more reverse. Like, it'd be really interesting if we thought about the show this way to have taken those two and put them back to back and watch ah, them yeah. almost in a dialectic. Ooh. Oh. The dialectic of Cruz and Hoffman. I like it. I will say this though. I think, I mean, not to also like score points about like what Shahir said, but I think number, what is interesting about three. Is that George Fragopoulos' entrance music? (laughs) You're the one that I want. You are the one I want. What would would be your your entrance music? My my entrance music? Um... Probably like a December song. Ooh, nice. <laughs> I walk like in. the uh, the one about the, like the guy who gets eaten by the whale. Uh, oh, um, the Mariner's it's Revenge song. Mariner's I love Revenge that song. Yeah. That's a great song. Yeah, we are two mariners, our ship soul survivors yeah. in this belly of a whale. So you know it. <laughs> it's ships are sailing peace. It's also what like twelve it's minutes long. It's a great song. I think we have some time to kill. Listen yeah, to it. our Decemberist podcast called. Oh my God. Can we start one? The Octoberist? December cast. Ooh. Decemberist cast. We'll, we'll figure it Do out. Do you know the history of the Decemberist? Yeah, of course. The That's thing, really interesting. The thing that I wanted to go, though, get back to what Shahir said is about like, it, I mean, this film obviously can't break yeah, the course. mold because there, at this point, there isn't a mold. There's right? no mold. Yeah. It's interesting to think about There's like no how mold. four, five, and six, like how one, two, and three also are really almost standalone in the sense that they all have a very radically different aesthetic. Yes. And then four, five, and six do kind of cohere in this like establishing of what is now, which, what I would now call the late Mission Impossible style as which, opposed to the early Mission I think Mission that's Impossible. a really good point. And then that, and then that, I'm actually referencing, of course, Adorno's notion of late style. I'm just kind of saying, I just wanted to Tell me that. more about that. I'm actually curious about what's, what is Adorno's theory of late style? <laughs> okay. You're putting me on the spot now well just basically like the, that late works of art are in some sort of way um like fragmentary or in some sort of way let's say um um like much more complicated and intense than like earlier works give of me art. an example so he looks i mean i think he applies it to like beethoven's later uh music it was a music because he was a music he, theorist was, a, he was a music nerd yeah so he i think when he first applies it he's looking at beethoven's music so can I make a um, what I think would be an interesting Please. example of late style? Mm-hmm. Uh, late style Michael Mann being Public Enemies or Miami Vice. There you go. Or late style Cassavetes, or they become the, like these really sprawling, intense, mm. um, kind of like, for lack of a better like term, where he's using kind of the entire canvas of the film, where like like he doesn't fucking Love care streams. about like, yeah, he doesn't care about runtime anymore. He doesn't care about plot in any sort of like really, I think, simplistic so I, way. I thought about that as an interesting thing because I had a conversation with Joe Rangeli, brother of Mike Rangeli, friend of the pod, about how um, I think Michael Mann's work becomes much more interesting the more abstract it eventually becomes. Like he makes these amazing yeah. films like The Insider and Heat that have oh. like a real narrative draw to them. Mm-hmm. But he's also, I like the films where it's kind of like, and Miami Vice, I love Miami Vice because I'm like, I don't know what these people are saying. Yeah. Time, this movie makes no sense. John Ortiz, <laughs> Jacko's Boating. He's oh, in that yeah, film. Yeah, yeah. And Collateral is a little bit of a return to earlier, but the abstraction and the images and kind of the sound mm-hmm. is interesting. So yeah, it, late style, that's yeah. very interesting. But the other thing also that you hear so that I wanted to kind of like think about is that I still think, and he also addressed this a little bit that the 
I think the ploy or the bringing in of the family and like the wife kind yes. of stuff is kind of cheap and is a little bit small or schmaltzy. And not that I think it can't be done in an interesting way, but I mean, as soon as that film starts, you know that she's going to get in trouble. Like you just know it. And I think in, it kind of shoots yeah. itself in foot by falling into this kind of like very conventional structures. Of we like, are talking about an action movie. Sh- sure. Action movie with the three yeah. act structure. Right. But that's also, I mean, I, that doesn't mean we shouldn't like think about that in the sense of it working against the film. I mean, do you think most people will go to watch, wanting it? I mean, come on, like, do, like we do, were just talking about late style. Late, well, late well, but, well, yeah, do most people like record podcasts about whether or not, like, you know, about how a film is working or like? Let me check the statistics. <laughs> like what? It turns out ninety eight percent of people have a podcast. What now. people are a fan of? No, I see. Just kind of intensity. Yeah, I'm and, giving you a hard time. Cause and because it's, it's fun. And I also think again, the three. Is, on one second, let me just. Yep. Yeah, okay. And I also think again, three is definitely better than two. Even though, again, two I has put its three lovers. at the bottom. Two has its lovers. And, you know, everyone... It's just, But you're right. It's not a great film. I would I would say that three has grown in my estimation, um, partially based on just thinking about what Chier had to say. And, and it's a really important movie to the rest of the franchise. It is. The franchise. He's right about that. Yeah. And also, we're talking about the best Hollywood franchise by, like, leaps and bounds at this point. It puts to shame oh. every other... Uh, I mean, there's except for the Todd Phillips DC well, and, universe, and yeah, of course, and there's, and and there's two weekend at Bernie's, so, <laughs> so we have to also keep you know, that in mind. What's what's a movie yeah. you thought deserved a sequel that never got one? Man, that's a loaded question. Men at Work, starring Charlie Sheen and Emilio Estevez. Great, Keith David's in that too. He's great. He's fucking amazing. It's in a that. great as movie. The, as the Vietnam vet, yeah. yeah. Um, did they ever make a sequel to that Star Wars movie? No, that one they didn't, right? The original, I would, yeah, yeah, yeah it was weird. It, yeah, I, I would say that one. I just weird. wanted to see what that Chewbacca it, it guy was, was up to. Because like they blow up the Death Star, and then they kind of like all yeah. s- and like it's like that's and I'm like, it. Yeah. It's happily ever after. And I'm like, you know, what no be re- one made another dollar. Yeah. You know, it'd be really great. And I was, I kept thinking like, once mm-hmm. they blew it up, mm-hmm. like if you if they brought that Death Star like back over and over, oh, and that would over be really again. good. I also think it'd be really good yeah. if um. I don't know, you make like a really daring entry in the series and mm-hmm. maybe take some huge risks yeah. and it pisses off some white boy shitty fans. So oh, yeah. you bring back uh, yeah. the guy that made the safe movie to direct the third one of the yeah. franchise. Because what we really need is those like, yeah, those aggrieved like white men like complaining like, you, you ruined my Star Wars. You ruined my childhood. Oh, you my, wrecked my, my childhood. I needed my movie. Star Wars Look. The Rise of Skywalker will be in theaters on December 20th, my birthday. I can't fucking wait. Oh my God, it's going to be so fucking good. Although it does scare me that J.J. Abrams is back. Yeah, it'll be fine. Just Force Awakens rocks. Yeah, it'll be fine. It does. It's great. But it's, you know. <laughs> uh, should, we, should we talk about this article? Let's do it. Fucking pause. Thank you again, Shahir. Shahir, thank you so much. All right, let's talk about the epic uncool of, of Philip Seymour Hoffman. So you've read this article a little more recently than I have. Yeah. Um, I would say um, for sure because it's true. Um, but I was... Uh, so let's let's start this conversation off by talking about the fact that we've sort of been breaking our Phil performances into the category of Big Phil, Little Phil. And you know, we've said this a million times, but Big Phil would be sort of his larger-than-life, grandiose performances. Mm-hmm. Maybe his later, late-period performances, not entirely, but some. And Little Phil, which is sort of his like more... Um, Let's introverted, say, introverted, cerebral, uh, cerebral parts, um, and what? Uh, so there's a lot. This article is quite long. Um, it's definitely well worth a read. It's well worth a read. It's it's quite long, and he covers each film in in exquisite in a paragraph of. He covers each film in a paragraph of exquisite detail, and he breaks it down into three categories. And let's talk through those three categories and see how we 
Let's see, see where it. we get. So the first category is the red-headed scene stealer. And he looks at this from 1991 to 1996. The films covered, covered are Triple Bogey on a Par 5 Hole, Leap of Faith, My New Gun, Scent of a Woman, My Boyfriend's Back, Money for Nothing, When a Man Loves a Woman, Nobody's Fool, The Getaway, Twister, and Hard Eight. And we only covered Twister, and you did that with with Cat Rodriguez. Yeah, um, yeah. I feel like we may have neglected this period, the a early bit, film, um, because we wanted to get into the meat of the performances. Mm-hmm. But one thing he says is Hoffman uh, made a big impression in small roles and small movies early in his career, using his unique physicality. And I think that we should cover the the two that are probably the best known, which is Twister and maybe Hard Eight. Mm-hmm. Um, Twister we talked about, but the, he kind of has this like eerie, this kind of like nice guy kind of loony confidence in that movie but um i think uh when i was in high school i watched hard eight every day after school for like months Mm -hmm. and phil hoffman made such an impression on me in that movie have you seen it i've not no oh that's pta's first film right pta's you've not seen hard eight no how can you be a white guy that likes movies and you haven't seen Hard Eight? <laughs> Sorry. So he Turn plays to my white guy he car one, who <laughs> likes movies. Leave it at the ta- on the <laughs> table. He has one scene the, in sort of at the beginning of the film where he's playing roulette, I think. I think I I've, seen know, film. Oh, I've seen this film. I've seen this With Philip P- Baker Hall and yeah. he's like such a prick. Yeah, yeah. And Philip Baker Hall it, has his classic sort of deadpan stare at him but it's, he's just, it's like it's it's such a different fill than where I feel like we ever got yeah. again. That's kind of interesting, and um, yeah, I thought it was interesting that he looked at it. It really is a scene stealing performance because I feel like people that movie has Gwyneth Paltrow, Samuel Jackson, yeah, yeah. John C. Riley, Philip Baker Hall, and the person that you remember, you remember Gwyneth Paltrow because she's really good in it, and they're all great. But like Phil Hoffman stole that movie. Yeah, in my mind, you've not seen it, so fuck yeah. it. Moving on, I've seen the porno parody. It's Which, called Heart Eight. <laughs> Just sorry, sorry. I just have to go there. So the next part is the best part of the best movies. So this covers 1997 to 2005, and the list here is Boogie Nights, Woo. Next Stop Wonderland, Woo. Montana, The Big Lebowski, Happiness, Patch Adams, The Talented Mr. Ripley, Magnolia, Flawless, State in Maine, Almost Famous, The Party's Over, Punch Drunk Love, Red Dragon, Owning Mahoney, Love Lisa, 25th Hour, Cold Mountain, Along Came Polly. And Capote. So this is a, a huge chunk of our show. Yeah. These, this, this is, you know, I would say that we sort of started with the best part of the best movies, which I think is interesting because that's kind of been the thesis of, of a lot of this show. I immediately think of things like uh, Punch Drunk, uh, Punch Drunk Love and Red Dragon. I mean, Red Dragon, we talked about. Yeah. yeah. God, though, maybe the only great thing about this movie is, um, is Phil Hoffman. But um, I want to pause and talk about State in Maine. Have you seen State in Maine? I've not. No, you told me. I, I think so it was on the bubble, a, have right? Have you actually seen any fucking movies? It's a, or <laughs> I know it's Mammoth. It is a David Mammoth film. Um, and um, I want to just pull up uh, what uh, Nathan Rabin, who, by the way, I hope he's fine with us talking through his article, said about State in Maine. Um, had a, uh, Hoffman tended towards extremes of human behavior, hurtling between intense psychotic villains, tragic heroes, mercurial geniuses, and outcasts, just barely surviving on society's fringes. <laughs> Sounds like me. So it's refreshing to see Hoffman play a sweet-natured, likable, romantic lead in David Mamet's sly 2000 satire, State in Maine. Uh, Hoffman plays Joseph Turner White, an adorably bookish playwright who comes to an England town to work on the film update adaptation of one of his plays and receives a crash course in the movie world's inability to corrupt everything it touches. Um... He has, uh, he has his his other his other half in this film is Rebecca Pigeon, who is David Mamet's wife. I didn't know. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, it's interesting to think about Hoffman in two ways. As a romantic lead, mm-hmm. which he kind of is in Jacko's Boating, but I think we sort of agreed it was kind of unsuccessful uh in a way as him as well i mean but the film plays into him not being like a typical leading man that's true Uh, but he's uh, i I think that was a little more even more interesting is shut up dog (laughs) shut the fuck up (laughs) is um him as an intellectual type we haven't really had that so much uh well capote capote and he pulls it off obviously of course he's really good but like him is sort of a bookish professor professorial type that almost sounds like that episode of the simpsons where they go to make that um they go to springfield to make the um the film version of that comic book radioactive radioactive man yes thank you love that episode i love (laughs) radioactive man up and atom up Up and atom up and atom atom. up and atom (laughs) better just him is like he he really does an idealistic guy whose life gets ruined in this film stainman is a is a really good movie and i think Phil Hoffman's sweet side was an underexploited part of his. Um, yeah, he mentioned that also oof. for his like the brief review of Magnolia about like his kindness and compassion in the character he plays. Oh, he's such a nice guy. And how movie. it just kind of, I mean, it's just like really powerful. Um, I also love, by the way, just very quickly what he says here about his performance and happiness, where he goes like, like so many of Hoffman's off outcasts, he was ruled. He's ruled by his compulsions. Hoffman grunts more than he breathes. Everything seems difficult for him. He forever seems on the verge of an asthma attack, a panic attack, or more disturbingly, given his predilections, a messy orgasm. I just love that description. Oh, so, <laughs> so dirty. Good. This also covers owning Mahoney, which I think is a real blind spot in the show. This episode is mostly about us, what we fucked up. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, what are we not covering? Um, let's jump to the third part. Let's a Master Emerges, 2005 ah. to 2014. Strangers with Candy, Mission Impossible 3, The Savages, Charlie Wilson's War, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, Doubt, Synodoki, New York, Pirate Radio, Marion Max, The Invention of Lying, Jack Goes Boating, The Ides of March, Moneyball, A Late Quartet, The Master, The Hunger Games, Catching Fire, A Most Wanted Man, God's Pocket, The Hunger Games, Mocking Jay. What a fucking incredible run, run yeah. of movies. And in also nine a, lot, years. a lot of a big fill in this list. Tell me more. Well, you know, like in Charlie Wilson's War, Mission um, Impossible Three, in Doubt, also he's doing a good, I think, like a mini big film, maybe. Maybe have a little bit of mini big film. Um, Cinedoki New York is maybe more mm, akin to his little film. Yeah, little film. But Hunger Games is kind of a um, like a, I haven't seen any of those. Yeah, he's kind of like um, interesting, like Machiavelli. Like, you know, he's on the good side, but he's yeah. Machiavellian. And I think the most big fill of them is the master. I always yeah, think about the pig the fuck scene and yeah. pig fuck. Yeah. Um, have you seen a most wanted man? I've not, no. Very curious to see where that, because that's a very different sort of, it's a very interesting movie. He plays like the German spy or he's something. He's a German spy named yeah. Gunther. Ooh, he's a very, he's a very Viet- it's German on the list. accent. It's, We're getting uh, there. We got two more. Yeah. Um, and the Savages. Have you seen the Savages? He plays a Breck scholar. Oh, really? Yeah, it's really oh. funny. There's a scene where he's at a chalkboard oh, talking yes, about yes. epic theater versus <laughs> Aristotelian theater. And I, he's like, epic theater has, has montage. <laughs> Aristotelian Jesus has scenes epic theater has has gestures <laughs> Aristotelian theater has has psychology I think maybe I've seen it's this great scene, oh, it's yeah. so funny because if you grew up if you have any of that in your headspace yeah. you're just like oh Jesus that's who these people are but it's like a miserable fucking performance um, by the way was this article published before we started our podcast because he might have a loss we might have a lawsuit on our hands yeah, no, it was, it was, uh, he covers all, <laughs> but he covers his, he covers he, everything. He does I these mean, deep dives. Um, I mean, this is very impressive and everybody um, should go out and read it. Nathan Rabin, if you're, if you're, um, 
if you're interested, we'd love to have you on the show to talk about it. Um, I know you've <laughs> can't afford you, but we'd love to have <laughs> you on the show. Um, if anything, I think this article allowed me to contextualize him in a really interesting way. Totally. Yeah, and yeah. Um, you should read it yourselves. And uh, if you have thoughts about it, we'd love to hear them. If you have thoughts about any of the films, we'd love to hear them. I think the thing that this makes you walk away with is the breadth of his achievement. Totally. I mean, going through this, again, I was shocked at how prolific he was. Yeah. And obviously this doesn't include like the stage stuff that he did or some of the other like, um, I mean, not he wasn't obviously, he didn't do a lot of TV or any TV, right? Other than maybe that um, Arthur episode. Yeah, I think he did a couple, but I mean, but yeah, mostly a film actor. Definitely theater, yeah. You know, one thing I think about it is going to sound. That dog's, Shut that dog's barking again. Uh, um, one thing I thought about a little, and granted, he did do some franchise movies. He did Hunger Games and whatever, but like, do you ever think what Philip Seymour Hoffman would play in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Ooh, he'd make an interesting Hulk. Are you fucking kidding me right no, now? No, I'm not because the Hulk transforms into yeah, the Hulk. I guess that would be interesting. Or I should say Bruce it's Banner just, transforms into... But see, into this is the funny thing. Oh, shit, Philip Seymour Hoffman you could never, Joker. You could never... That would be incredible. Yeah. You could never really contextualize Phil Hoffman as the, as the Hulk him. because he's not like... Okay, Mark so Ruffalo's a babe, who so would he, he can play the Hulk. Who would he play? Bruce Banner has to be a babe. And from I don't know who... He, he would Bruce be... Bruce Banner was a scientist, I know, we're, listen, we're not a Marvel stand podcast, but mm-hmm. he would be very interesting, I think, as in the, uh, in Black Panther, Martin Freeman's part as the CIA agent, oh, who's yeah, kind of yeah. like one of the more problematic elements of that movie is yeah, the like, good-natured CIA so? yeah. agent. <laughs> but like, hi, he, I work for the CIA. I'm, I'm good. But it's well cast because you believe <laughs> Martin Freeman is yes, a good guy. Martin Freeman is a, is a great actor. A great actor. Um, he'd be a really interesting... Um, I, a couple of things I'd love to see him do, and he kind of did some of this stuff. He'd be really, he'd be interesting in that part. Mm-hmm. I've always thought he'd be really interesting as um, a private detective, which he kind of does ah. some of that in a Most Wanted Man, this like haunted investigator. Yeah. Um, but I, I think he'd be a good Chewbacca type right, alien. So I'm trying to have a serious conversation. Here. It's fucking, <laughs> sorry, it's fucking ridiculous. <laughs> I'm not at all a professional podcaster. Um, but I think the ultimate thing that I think yes. I think about all the time, and actually a buddy of mine talks about this before, Philip Seymour Hoffman would yes. have been an incredible penguin in a Christopher oh, Nolan yes. Batman movie. Yeah, definitely. Incredible Oswald Cobblepot. Mm-hmm. Not, not, and listen, Danny DeVito is legendary, a legend in that um, in that film. But can you imagine sort of a like a like a and remember in the original 1960s show Oswald uh, Penguin was like the was like a, a more like dapper kind dapper, of almost like Flynn uh, not a Flynn or um, a um, uh, what the, dandy no yeah a little bit you, of a dandy yeah, uh, that's what it was like, like a dandy, dandy. criminal mm-hmm. like because he had the Capote thing which has a little bit of a yeah, dandy to yeah, it yeah. but imagine if that were put to like. He wouldn't be monstrous. He would be like cunning, a little bit more human, yeah. But also maybe a psychopath. Much like a like much like fucking penguins are, by the way. <laughs> He'd be a really great psychopath. He could be a really great flamboyant villain. I, I feel thing, like Christopher I Nolan could really. Listen to this it. thing on NPR okay. today about like all these Empire penguins dying because all the uh, the ice is shrinking, and I was like, "Good, they're fucking psychopaths. Those fucking monsters." I have a friend. No, who's seriously, a, save the penguins. Very <laughs> please. He's very serious. He once told me he was like, "I'm a very serious vegetarian, except for sharks." And I was like, "Oh, because of the, there's more of them." He's like, "No, fuck them. They're assholes. <laughs> fuck sharks. I'm, you know, we shark need the sharks, but I would totally fucking eat a penguin." Yeah, mm, delicious. I we don't mean that. This anything else? Um, no, I think um, I do think also just very briefly that at some point, and I, I was looking for it, but at some point, uh, Rubin says something about mm. Hoffman as an artist, and obviously, 
it's it's important to think about actors as artists, but also that so they're given short shrift in that regard all the time. Yeah, but yesterday we were talking about like why on our Jack Goes Boating episode will drop, drop soon. Or what do you mean which already month, dropped weeks and weeks ago. Weeks ago, you God, well, my, you're not a professional podcaster. All the times are just complaining. You're not a professional catcher. But about why he would be attracted to that film, because we all kind of sort of agree that it was, in, in certain respects, interesting, but overall kind of a failure. Mm-hmm. And it's just interesting again to think about like the decisions that he oftentimes does make consciously, mm-hmm. besides obviously like the uh, cashing a check, right? Um, and why, let's say, he might be interested in like a role that he was in and that's just, I think something we should always be concerned when we're thinking about like why an actor of his caliber is in a certain kind of film and what he's bringing to that mm-hmm. and what attracted him to the role and he kind of got out at a time when it wasn't all franchises got out is a terrible way to say it I, yeah. I don't but he yeah he, he left us he left us too yeah. soon and too young and before uh, things evolved in an interesting direction or not so interesting direction depends what you yeah it depends on where you stand <laughs> Um, and his master co-star yeah. is now, uh, is now at a DC Stan. He's part of that universe now, yeah. Oh, what a world. Oh, what a world to live in interesting times. Oh, it's just, oh, what what a brave new world that hath such creatures int. Ah, uh-huh. I was going to quote Mao and that thing about like, there's chaos in the sky, the conditions couldn't be better. Oh my God, I'm sorry, you guys. We're it's something like that. I'm, so bad. I'm, a little, I'm a little off on that exact uh, Mao quote. I don't again. really have that Mao quote. I got to check my, my red book when yeah, I go home. Let me check that out when I get home. But on that um, note, One thing I wanted to ask about oh, real yeah. quick was, um, I forget, I don't remember anymore, but there was something <laughs> I had that was going to be good. Yeah, I don't remember what it was. Was it about the Marvel Cinematic Universe? No, I think it was about, it was about um, the something else Joker. about Phil, but there's always a million things that we said about Phil. Um, if you have thoughts on a film we've talked about, thoughts on a film we haven't talked Ooh, about, something yeah, we've please. missed, um, send us a voicemail, uberbusters at gmail.com. Uh, email us. Just let us know. We, As you can see, we'll play your entire voicemail yeah. on the podcast. Um, thank you, Shahir. That was great. And if you have any, by the way, like uh, handwritten hate mail, I'm going to put Liam's address on the in the met- metadata, so it's you could just send it straight there. 11th Street. Um, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, mm. oh. Uh, well, Who are you? we're not going to do the traditional now. We're not just a fucking. Oh, it's just fucking. It's a bridge um, we'll be episode. back. We'll be back in a couple weeks. Two with, weeks with Philip Seymour Hoffman, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Joaquin Phoenix and in the Joker. M- I mean, in Master, the Master, Master. Um, bye bye. When you introduce me, can you call me the, the Master? master? <laughs> <laughs> I just love that you knew exactly where that was going. All right, bye guys. Bye.